Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, today we are going to be picking up on a topic that's um, uh, really just a three-week sermon series, and it's over the role of women in ministry. And um, you might ask why this topic and why today, why now? And so let me just kind of give a few reasons. First of all, it's an important topic just for churches and Christians in general to kind of understand where they stand, where we stand, because it does affect so much of how we operate, how we do church. Secondly, uh, if you follow our National Southern Baptist Convention and some of the decisions they make a couple of months ago in the National Convention, they made an interpretive decision about women in ministry that they are expecting um, Southern Baptist churches to align with. And so we have to determine, do we agree with their interpretation or not? And, um, and then uh, make decisions accordingly. Third, we, you, if you were here about a month ago, we had the wonderful privilege of having a next-gen sermon series and we invited Hayden Walker, who teaches our One Accord class, uh, Sunday school class, that's our young adult class, to uh, actually preach the, the sermon that day. Hayden is a graduate of Washita Baptist University in Christian Studies. She also had earned her Master's of Divinity at Beeson uh, Seminary, a Baptist seminary in uh, Alabama. And so uh, she travels, she has... Uh, leads conferences, speaks quite a bit, and even preaches when invited. So we invited her to preach. And so there may have been a few of you who asked the question, were we breaking the rules by letting Hayden preach this sermon? And so my answer to that is, well, it depends on whose rules you're talking about. And the main thing we need to all agree on is it's really only God's rules that matter. We do need to look at Scripture. This is not a sermon series built on a, it's culturally driven. It's theologically driven. We really need to look in the Word of God and understand what God's Word teaches about this topic and any topic. And so for those reasons, we're going to have a short three-week series. In this series, you'll hear a little bit of my journey my process, my background, and then just kind of how I've been uh, on a path towards trying to understand what the Bible really does teach about the roles of women in ministry. So with that in mind, I grew up, like many of you, in a Southern Baptist church, and my church practiced what is known as an interpretive view of complementarianism. And so what, what does that mean? Complementarianism, I have a definition we can put on the screen. 
Complementarianism stresses that although men and women are equal in personhood, they're created for different roles. Specifically, men are to be leaders in their homes, and only men are to be in leadership roles in the church. So that's complementarianism. And um, my church practiced a pretty strict form of this. In fact, when I grew up, we only had male staff members, uh, male pastors. We did not ordain women deacons. We did not have women teaching co-ed Bible study classes. Uh, women were not in leadership positions on any of our committees. And as far as I know, I might be remembering incorrectly, but as far as I know, we never even had a woman come up on the platform, the stage, and read a scripture or offer a prayer. Now, that's a very strict form of complementarianism. <clears throat> now, there are different forms of it. There are what I'd call a very moderate form of complementarianism. It's... Um, kind of championed by some different folks. Uh, in fact, uh, Kathy Keller, the wife of the late Timothy Keller, the Presbyterian scholar pastor from New York, uh, actually wrote a book about justice and gender roles. And in her book, she basically argues for a what I would call a moderate complementarianism. And that simply just means that as long as your overseers, your leading roles, your your authoritative leaders in the church, whether that be the senior pastor, whether that be elders, whatever church leadership structure you have, as long as they are males, then the women in those churches can really uh, serve in any role that the overseers allow or encourage. And so that includes even preaching and teaching and so on and so forth. So that's what I would call a moderate complementarianism. But again, that wasn't my church's position. Um, in fact, if you asked my church leaders where they got their views, they would have taken you to one of two passages. One of them would have been 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I have this that we can look at, verse 11 through 15. It says, A woman should not learn in quietness and full submission. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But woman or women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And then the other passage they might have sent us to would be 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35, that says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So this is really kind of two of the key foundational passages that my church, a strict complementarianism church, would have based their views and practices upon. And so, as a young Christian, when I kind of heard that explanation, it was kind of like a lot of us. I was like, okay, now this is what the Bible says. We believe it. So that settles it, right? And so just kind of went through life and ministry following this interpretive view of women in ministry and our strong tradition of complementarianism. <clears throat> and that lasted really for me through my first three ministry positions 
And then about 20 years ago, I had um, I was involved in the leadership of a, a church that was really kind of a restart. Uh, and so as we restarted this church, I was working with some of my fellow colleagues. A New Testament professor was one of those uh, at Washita, where I was teaching at the time. And so we were restarting this church and needing to decide on our leadership structure and what views we would hold. And it was at that time that I began to dig a lot deeper into this and having conversation with other colleagues, other theologians. And I was very, very surprised to learn that scholars, evangelical scholars, these are the people that I really trust to discern deep theological issues, people that know the Greek and the Hebrew of the Bible, people that are experts in biblical backgrounds and the historical and social and cultural world of the New Testament, people that are expert theologians. These are the people that I read in commentaries as I prepare my messages. These are the people that write the textbooks. I was very surprised to learn that they were very divided on this issue between complementarianism and egalitarianism. What is egalitarianism? Egalitarianism agrees that men and women are equal in personhood and holds that there are no gender-based limitations on the roles of men and women in the home or church. And so this really kind of caught my attention. And I realized, whoa, this may not be as clear-cut of a biblical teaching as I was led to believe. And... Um, as our tradition has led us to believe. And I'm not talking about reading liberal scholars. I'm talking about evangelical scholars. Very conservative scholars are divided. And so that made me be aware that we really all need to take a deep dive into this, individually and as churches, and uh, understand that it's a debatable issue in Scripture. And so that's what I began to do. I started looking more closely at this. I'd already taken some uh, graduate studies in New Testament at this point where I had entered into the world of New Testament history at a deeper level in the historical cultural background. And I do remember after some of those studies, going back and reading through the Gospels and looking at the life of Christ. And I was pretty um, amazed at after understanding the culture that Jesus lived in and grew up in, this Judas, uh, the, the Jewish culture of the first century, that was a very male-centered, male-dominated, patriarchal culture. And the same is true for the Greco-Roman culture, not quite as extreme as the Jewish culture, but still very much the same. And within that culture, I remember being amazed at how counterculture, cultural, um, and how pro-women Jesus was and how much opportunities he provided to the women in the uh, early Christian movement. It's pretty mind-boggling. 
when you began to see how he interacted with women and the roles that he allowed them to play, especially when you realized the culture that they came out of and that they were living as part of. And so that's going to be something I want us to look at. We'll probably look at that here in a couple of weeks, just how Jesus, his view of women in ministry and the roles they played in his ministry. But today, I want us to go a different direction. One of the things that I did not readily understand and see until I took a deeper dive about 20 years ago into the scriptures is that the Apostle Paul was extremely countercultural. And the Apostle Paul was radically pro-women in ministry. And the roles that Paul allowed women to play in the early church were absolutely extraordinary. Again, in the backdrop of a very male-dominated, male-centered, patriarchal culture that the early church was birthed in. So that's what I want us to do today. Next few minutes, just want us to kind of look at Paul's life, ministry, some of the situations, some of the women that he encountered and the roles that they played. Now, if we do this study, we could look at lots of different passages. We could look at um, and lots of different interactions with women like Lydia. Lydia was the first believer in Europe. She was the first convert on the second missionary journey in a place called Philippi. She's the very first convert. And then ultimately, very quickly, we see she started hosting a church in the city of Philippi in her home. And if you understand their background, that meant that you weren't only hosting it, you were providing a meal, you were also leading the interactions, the conversations, which would have been about the apostles' teaching. And so you see that happening. We have other women we could talk about. Chloe from Corinth, a very leading woman there in the church. We could talk about Aphia, who is Philemon's wife. And together, she and her husband hosted the church in Colossae. We could talk about Nympha, the only woman mentioned directly by name from the church of Laodicea. And what he tells us there is that she hosted and led the house church in Laodicea. Women in ministry leadership right off the bat in these missionary journeys. We could talk about these women and others, but what I really want us to focus on today is from uh, Romans. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 16, the very last part of Romans. And this is where we have Paul's final greetings. And it's one of those lists of a whole bunch of names that most of us cannot pronounce. It's kind of like we get to, uh, like if you're in the Gospels and you're reading the genealogy of Jesus, you get to those names, right? What do you do? You can't even pronounce them. You don't know who they are. So what do you do? Some of us just skip beyond that, right? And those of us who are type A personalities, we just speed read through it, say we, that we read the whole Bible, right? We, we do it that way. But this is important. We shouldn't do that here because Paul is doing something quite unusual. Often at the end of his letters, he kind of just gives a, a general statement like, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus, the brothers and sisters who are with me send their greetings. That's how he ends Philippians. But he doesn't do that here. 
He doesn't give this generic greeting. What he ends up doing, you'll see in Romans 16, is he lists very specific people. In fact, there are 29 different people listed in Romans 16. But what is really, really amazing, again, understanding the culture, is that 10 of these people mentioned specifically are women. Who's he mentioning here? Why is he doing this? He's talking about leaders. Paul's never been to Rome, by the way. He's sending this letter to the Romans. He can't go there directly, but he plans to come there. He plans to set up a ministry base. And so what he's doing is setting up a social network. You didn't realize there was a social network before Facebook, right? He was setting up a social network in the Roman community because he wanted to build a ministry foundation base, and he was connecting himself with all of these people that were already in Rome, telling the Romans, you can trust these people. They're credible leaders. They're proven leaders, and they're paving the way for me to come, and you can trust me because I know them and you know them. That's what he's doing. And he's establishing this through these, this list of people and all the commendations. Let me just quickly read it. It says, I commend you for our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Then he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only for me, but for the churches of the Gentiles that are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ Jesus before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asenocritus and uh, Phlegjon and Hermes and Petrobus and Hermas and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus and Julia and Neuros and his sister and Olympus and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. <clears throat> so there you have it. Very specific list with very specific people, and many of them received commendations or compliments or explanations of Paul's connection with them. And in fact, 34% of this list are women. And if you look at the list, Paul does commend a lot of the men. He gives, sometimes he just mentions their name, but 50% of the time he says something about them, something really good. But 80% of the women he mentions, he says something about them, something really good. Let's take a quick look at these women with the few minutes we have left. Let's go in kind of reverse order. I'm going to list the women, the 10 women. We have Nura's sister mentioned last. We have Julia next. Then we have, uh, after, uh, before her, we, we have Rufus' mother. Then we have Persis, Tryphosa, Tryphena. And then at the beginning of the list, we have Junia, Mary, Priscilla, and Phoebe is mentioned first. 
Let's just kind of zero in on the very last four of these women, because I think they kind of can speak for the rest of them. We actually have uh, most of the commendations, the most print, the most press about three of these women happens to be Junia, Priscilla, and Phoebe. So let's look at them for just a moment and see what Paul is saying. First of all, in verse 7, we see about Junia. And look what, what Paul says about her. He says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. All right, so this is a husband-wife team, we believe, and they actually have suffered in prison with Paul. It was very unusual for a woman to be put in a prison in the Greco-Roman world. And the reason for that it was it was extremely dangerous because there were no men, women, uh, men's prisons and women's prisons. Everybody was in there together. It was very overcrowded. Uh, there was all, lots of opportunity for violence, sexual abuse, horrible situation. And if you ever were in that and got out of it, you would never want to go back into it again. Why was Junia and her husband in prison with Paul? For preaching the gospel. And that was seen in some places as an attack on the Roman gods and goddesses and disruptive to their customs and communities. She was in prison with Andronicus, her husband, and Paul because she was a minister of the gospel and an evangelist and a teacher and a minister of the early church. And she got out of prison, and what's she doing now? She's back in Rome serving in the church. Very dangerous, but willing to take that risk. Why? Because she believed in the Lord and the gospel and the ministry she was part of. What's very, very interesting is it says at the end that they're outstanding among the apostles, uh, and they were in Christ before I was. This is an extraordinary statement. Andronicus and Junia are being called apostles. And Paul then says they actually were believers before I was. Paul became a believer, we think, within four years of Jesus' death. And what I think this means is that Andronicus and Junia were believers during the lifetime of Jesus. They actually knew Jesus. You know, there's a story in... in um, Luke 10, where Jesus sent out 72 disciples. You remember that story? We believe that some of those were couples. In fact, maybe all of them were couples. And it's very probable that Andronicus and Junia were one of those couples. And uh, they knew Jesus. Thus, they had this eyewitness testimony. Thus, were considered apostles. The highest ranking authority in the early church were apostles. Junia was an apostle. Extraordinary. Then we have Mary, who worked very hard for you. We have that statement said over and over again uh, by these several of these women. And it just simply is a, it's, it means the word kapiao uh, means they were, they had honorable toil for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Christian community. These women were very committed, very sacrificial in their service, courageous, resilient, had a passion for the gospel. That's what that means. Extraordinary what these women were doing. And then we come to Priscilla in verse 3. 
Priscilla and Aquila. We meet them on five different occasions where their names are mentioned together. They were fellow tent makers or leather workers that worked with Paul. They were dear friends of Paul. He, they lived originally in Rome. They had to leave Rome because of a, 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 a probably because of, of their Christian faith. Uh, they were kicked out of Rome by the emperor, kicked all the Jews out because I think the Jews were arguing about Christ and whether he was truly the Messiah. They end up in Corinth and meet Paul. They serve with Paul. Then they go to Ephesus and they serve with Paul there. And now they're back in Rome. What's interesting of the five times that they're mentioned together, Priscilla's name comes first. And that's not an accident. You see the same thing with Paul and Barnabas earlier in Acts. When Paul kind of takes over the ministry leadership and they're in uh, Gentile territory, his name's always mentioned first. What we believe, the rationale that I believe is why she was mentioned first is she was the primary ministry leader. And Aquila, her husband, was very active, very involved, and truly a leader, but he was more in the support role. What's interesting, if you read the story in Acts 18, is that Priscilla and Aquila actually meet a guy named Apollos, an intellectual who was a gifted evangelist, talented theologian. They hear him preach and realize there's some gaps in his theology. They call him aside, take him to their house, and they explain the way of the Lord more clearly to him. What are they doing? They're teaching him more about the gospel. Who's probably doing most of the teaching? It's Priscilla. Teaching a not only just a, a male, but a leader in the church, in, uh, in the mission. And then we come to Phoebe, mission first. Described in verse 1 of chapter 16 as a deacon. Phoebe was a deaconess, an authoritative position in the church of Sincrea, which was right next to Corinth. And then he's telling the Roman people, receive her in the Lord, provide hospitality to her because she's worthy of it. She deserves it. And she was a benefactor. She was one who probably financially supported Paul and many other believers and was investing in the kingdom of God. What was Phoebe doing? In their world... You couldn't just write a letter, like the letter of Romans, walk out to your mailbox, stick it in there, and pull a little flag up, and expect the Roman postal service to get it where it needs to go in a timely manner. We can't even do that with the United States Postal Service. But you couldn't do that. What you had to do was find a trustworthy letter carrier to transport, to physically take your letter to where it needs to go. And then when she got there, Phoebe, who was doing this, would then have probably read the letter to the Church of Rome. But remember, the Church of Rome wasn't like us, one big gathering. It would have been all these little house churches. She probably would have gone to house church, to house church, to house church, reading the letter. Whether or not she read it, we don't know for sure, but likely she did. But we do know with quite a bit of certainty that she would have then taken on questions and dialogue with the church and explained what Paul was saying. She was Paul's representative. Paul's proxy. She was the one setting up Paul's ministry because Paul was about to head to Rome at some point in the near future and build a ministry base from there to the ends of the earth. And who did he entrust to do this? 
Who did he value? He could have chosen all kinds of people that we read about in Corinth, like even some that he's mentioned in this letter, like Gaius and Erastus and Cordus, but he could have chosen Stephanus or Fortunatus or Achaicus or Crispus. Men. But he chose Phoebe, a deacon, a woman. Why? Because he trusted her the most to be his best representative. Now, all of this is just saying we really should take a deeper look into the Scriptures. Not just a few select Scriptures, but all the Scriptures to really build our theology of what the Bible really says about women in ministry and the roles that women can have. And that kind of leads us to one last question 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. Who wrote those? Paul wrote those words. Those very restrictive words. But when you see all the rest of Paul's ministry and how he interacted with women and the roles they played in the early church mission, we might need to ask the question, was something unique Something very situational specific taking place in Timothy's setting, which was Ephesus, church that he was sent to because they were having all kinds of problems, or in Corinth, a church that we know was a problem child church all along for Paul. Was there something going on, a problem that involved women, and therefore Paul didn't make a universal restriction, but perhaps a specific situation restriction on the women in those churches? If that is a possibility, we ought to check into it. And guess what? When you dig into those two letters, that's exactly what you find. And we'll have to cover that next week. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org. 